Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. If you're new with us, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at uh, Calvary on Sunday morning. And we have taken our time through the current section we are in. Chapters 5 through 7 is a section that Many have called the greatest sermon ever preached. Of course, that would stand to reason because the Lord Jesus Christ preached it. You can't get any better than that. But chapters 5, 6, and 7 are referred to as the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus gave this sermon to his disciples while they were on a mount overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Very beautiful place. In fact, I've actually been there on that very spot. It's a gorgeous setting for this sermon. And this morning we are in chapter 7 and we want to focus in on verse 12 where the Lord said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This verse has been given the title, The Golden Rule. The Golden Rule. It has been called by many the highest standard of Christian virtue and living. It's been called the Mount Everest of ethics, the supreme standard for all human relationships. And that's true. I mean, if everyone practices principle, it would revolutionize every human relationship on the planet, not just individually, but internationally, ending war, poverty, and famine. The problem is, it's not possible for people to live this way because they don't have the strength nor the moral goodness to do so. I mean... Remember, we are living in a world of fallen sinners. And as such, even if fallen sinners desire to live this way, which they really don't, even if they did desire to live this way, though, they couldn't do it consistently because the selfishness and wickedness of their fallen natures just wouldn't allow it. And by the way, as we started this whole study in the Sermon on the Mount, way back in chapter 5, we pointed out that the purpose of Jesus giving this sermon was not to give the world wonderful ethics by which they are to live their life. We know that he didn't even address this sermon to the multitudes. He took his disciples to a private place uh, overlooking the Sea of Galilee on a mount. I say private because it was only for his disciples. He wasn't ministering to the multitudes, all right? And he wanted to take them aside and he wanted to address them, giving his people, his disciples, who were saved, the principles of kingdom living. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ knew there is absolutely no way for a fallen world in rebellion against God to even desire to live this way, let alone have the power to live this way. This is only the principles by which people who are born of the Spirit, Jesus' disciples can live their lives by, because God gives us the strength then to live this way. It would take a spirit-filled believer to live this kind of life. So, understand that even though the world, and sometimes people of the world will read the scriptures, and they'll pull things out, you know, and go, oh, isn't this a wonderful ethic for all of us to live by? Well, uh, yeah, and in the kingdom age, we're all going to live according to this rule. But right now, not so much. Now, remember, as we've talked about this, the theme of chapter 7 is judgment. And everything in this chapter ties together and relates to that theme. 
See, when people yank verses out of their context and treat them in a kind of a, a standalone way, it leads to misinterpretations, wrong conclusions, and ultimately faulty applications. We know that verse 12 was not intended by Jesus to be understood as a separate thought. We know that because it begins with the word, therefore. Whenever you see therefore in the scriptures, whether it's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking or Paul, Peter, Jude, or whatever. Whenever you read the scriptures and you're reading along and then the author says therefore. It means they have come now to a point of application. A point where they want to, you know, uh, take what they've just taught and sum it up. Give an application usually embodied in a principle. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is doing here. He is saying, in the light of all that I've just gotten done saying to you, verses 1 through 11, therefore, here is the principle by which you are now to live your lives. You are to treat others the way you would have them treat you. Now, the theme of chapter 7 is judgment, but the underlying principle in the first 11 verses of this chapter is love. God's love. And here's how it works. What Jesus is saying here, in essence, is this. God's love doesn't go around judging and putting everyone down with a critical heart like the scribes and Pharisees did. Remember, all throughout the sermon, he is using the scribes and Pharisees, you know, big circle and line through it. Don't be like these guys. Here's how they do it. Here's how they live. Here's how they treat people. Don't be like them. You don't belong to their group. You're my people, right? And so God's love doesn't go around judging and putting everybody down, doesn't look like us, dress like us, and act like us in every area of our lives. However, God's love is concerned for the welfare of others, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, we are to hold each other accountable. We are to to love each other enough that we would want to see our lives be all they can be for God, lives that are pleasing to Him so that He can bless us as His children exactly the way He wants to. That's a very important point. We need to understand that, look, the speck in our brother or sister's eye is a foreign object and needs to be removed. Just make sure, Jesus is saying, that when you go to them, it's the love of God that's motivating you and not a love of self rooted in pride. So we have to check our motives first. But after we do, it's good to keep each other accountable so that we can all live lives that please God and allow Him to really bless us the way He wants to. Paul talked about this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let me read them to you. Paul said, If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, in other words, mature, should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. The law of Christ. What does that mean? Well, I'm assuming what Paul has in mind is the night before Jesus' crucifixion, while he was in the upper room with his disciples, remember what he said in John 13, verses 34 and 5? He said, a new commandment I give to you, right? That you love one another as I have loved you. That's love, folks. It's God's love. And God's love wants the best for others. And so when we talk about 
God's love, wanting to hold each other accountable so we can be blessed. Because my goal should be to see you walking as closely with God as possible and being blessed by God as much as possible. If that's my goal, well, that's where verses 1 through 6 come in. Now, to know who to confront, when and in what way to confront them. When I say in what way, I mean, do you need to give a harsh rebuke or a gentle encouragement? To know these things, well, that's a matter for prayer. And that's what the Lord dealt with in verses 7 through 11. Now, with that as the context, again, we can't just pull verses from their context. All right, With that as the context, the Lord Jesus then gives this sweeping kingdom principle to sum it all up. A principle that he commanded all of his disciples to live by. Let's read it again. Verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You remember that later on in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, I believe it was a lawyer came to Jesus, an expert in the law of Moses. A lawyer came to Jesus. In fact, why don't you turn there? Matthew 22, and let's read verses 37 to 40 together. He comes to Jesus and basically says... You know, teacher, what is the greatest commandment of all? Now, that is not the easiest question to answer. For Jesus it was, of course. But you have to understand where this guy was coming from. He was a Jewish lawyer. He knew the law of Moses. And he knew in the law of Moses, it contained 613 commandments. 613 commandments. 248 were positive. Things that God said we must do. Love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a positive commandment. And then 365 negative commandments. Things that we were commanded not to do. Or at least the Jewish people back then, right? So 613 commandments. And they had running debates in those circles as to which one was the greatest. All right. So here he comes to Jesus and says, Look, will you settle something for us here? Right, what is the greatest commandment of all that God gave to Moses? And in verse 37, Jesus said to him, Well, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The Greek for first there is not in chronology. Its superiority is the idea. This is the supreme commandment overall. That you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is very much like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus took 613 commandments and condensed them down into two all-encompassing commandments. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, in saying this, Jesus took... Primarily, I'm thinking of the Ten Commandments. Remember now, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Sinai, we call it the Decalogue, all right? It was divided into two tables. The first table dealt with man's relationship to God. The second table dealt with man's relationship to his fellow man. And so in saying this, in Matthew here, verses 37 to 40, Jesus took the first four commandments of the Decalogue that deal with man's relationship to God, and then the last six, 
commandments that deal with man's relationship to his fellow man, and he condensed them into into two all-encompassing commandments. Jesus said, look, on these two, all that God said in the Old Testament law with regard to human relationships is covered then. Okay? Everything God said in the Old Testament law that dealt with human relationships. I'm thinking now of the love your neighbors yourself, right? Everything that dealt with human relationships in the law could be, could be a condensed into that just one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so in Matthew 7, 12, when Jesus commanded his disciples to treat others the way they would want to be treated, he was essentially saying, love your neighbor as yourself in a slightly different way. It's the same idea. Love your neighbor as yourself or treat others the way you would want them to treat you. It's basically saying the same thing. And the concept here is this. If we're going to love the way God wants us to love, and if His love is going to rule over our lives and govern all of our human relationships, then we need to understand that God's love is more is more than just the absence of the negatives. All right? It's more than just the absence of the negatives. Uh, girls imagined one day you went to your husband's and you felt a little bit um, insecure because he hadn't really told you he loved you in a while. And so you went to him and said, Honey, do you love me? And he said to you, well, I haven't done anything bad to you, have I? Would that answer your question? No. Okay, so there's nothing bad to you. Does that really constitute true love, though? True love is not just the absence of the negatives. It's the presence of the positives, isn't it? Great, he hasn't done anything bad to you. That's wonderful. Well, you know, is there anything positive going on, is the idea. And this is the, the, the positive aspect of love is embodied in this principle in Matthew 7, verse 12. We call it the golden rule. It's not just not doing bad stuff to folks. It's treating them the way you would want to be treated by them. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, How we treat others is not to be determined by how we expect them to treat us or by how we think they should treat us, but by how we want them to treat us. There it is the heart of the principle, an aspect of the general truth that is not found in similar expressions in other religions or philosophies, end quote. And that is very true. I don't know if you realize this, but many philosophers and religious leaders before Jesus taught, taught a kind of a negative form of the golden rule. Let me give you some examples. Rabbi Hillel, who died 12 years after Jesus was born, he said, and I quote, What is hateful to yourself, do not do to others. Confucius said, What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Epictetus, who was living sometime before the time of Christ, was condemning slavery and taught this, what you avoid suffering yourself, seek not to inflict upon others. I'll give you one more. This was not uncommon among many of the philosophies, philosophers, and religious people in the ancient world. But the Stoics, now they were a, a, a group that lived in, at the time of the first century. The Stoics had a basic maxim, and it was this. What you do not wish to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. Now look. All of these express a kind of a negative golden rule. If you don't want anybody to do bad stuff to you, don't do bad things to them. 
That's the idea, right? But there really is, think about this, there really isn't any virtue in that. There really isn't any virtue in that. I mean, most people don't go around doing evil things to others on purpose, not because they love people so much, but because they're afraid of the consequences if they do. See, it's a fear of breaking the law and the punishments that will follow that keeps most people from hurting others in one way or another, okay? I mean, if you're not afraid of consequences, then laws are actually no good. I mean, Paul the Apostle said to Timothy that um, laws were only given by God to, to restrain the passions and evil of fallen people, of unbelievers. Believers don't need to have external laws because God has written His laws in our hearts and given us the Holy Spirit. And as such, we now want to obey God and want to treat others uh, with love because that's what He wants. And so as believers in Christ, um, we don't want to steal from anybody else or hurt anybody else or, or take advantage of other people because that's not the nature of God and the nature of God now dwells in us. But see, unbelievers need laws to restrain those evil desires. Otherwise, you'd have anarchy and survival of the fittest and no society can function under those kinds of things. And so God gave outward laws to restrain the evil in men's hearts. But if you think about it, these laws that keep people from hurting others, those folks are really not um, being motivated by any kind of a selfless love, which is God's love. They're really being motivated by a selfish love, a love of self. They don't want to do things that will hurt others because why? Well, I might get uh, uh, prosecuted. I might, uh, you know, uh, get sued. I might inadvertently break a law and then have to pay the consequences. So really, it's a love of self that governs their actions when it comes to how they treat others. See, the golden rule in the negative form isn't even Christian. It's just basic human common sense like don't play with fire. Why? Because if you do, you get burned. I mean, look out for yourself. Don't do stupid things because you'll reap the consequences. It's a principle that looks out for self and not the welfare of others. And folks, you don't need to be a Christian to do that. You don't need to have God's strength and love to do those kind of things. You can go ahead and do those things on your own. I mean, just our human ability will allow us to self-preservation, looking out for ourselves first. This will keep us from doing certain actions. But the positive aspect of the golden rule, as Jesus gave it, listen, is utterly impossible for unbelievers to practice on an ongoing basis. I mean, to determine in your heart all the things that you would want others to do to you, all the kindness, all the love, all the help that you would want others to give to you, and you figure all that out, and then you run out, and you do it to others first, look, that is something that unregenerate people have no capacity to do. Now listen to me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that unsaved people can never do anything good. I'm not saying that. Uh, in the verse just prior to this one, Jesus said in verse 11, teaching on prayer, but he said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? When Jesus said, If you then, being evil, what He was saying is, If you then, as fallen individuals, okay, now, of course these guys were saved, but He's speaking of mankind in general now. If, if unbelieving fathers who have this fallen nature, okay, who are evil in their nature, can still do good things to the people they love, 
how much more so will your heavenly Father give good things to those, his kids, who ask him? That's the idea. We are not saying that unbelievers are incapable of moments of selflessness and kindness and generosity. I see it all the time. But we're talking here as a general rule, a pattern for their life. And John mentions this in 1 John chapter 3. He says, here is the general pattern for the children of God and the children of the devil. The children of God do righteousness. The children of the devil live unrighteously. And again, that's not to say that the children of God who live righteously can't once in a while do some bad things. Nor does it say that people who live unrighteously, unbelievers, can't once in a while do something good. It just means the general pattern of the life of a Christian as opposed to an unbeliever is the Christian wants to do God's will and lives in accordance to what he has said. The unbeliever, still governed by the fallen nature, wants to do what pleases him or herself. Unbelievers put self pretty much at the top of their list. Now, that's the principle. Let me quickly give you the practice because a principle... Especially a biblical principle is a wonderful thing, but it's absolutely useless and worthless if it's not applied. So here's the practice. This principle that Jesus gave to his disciples, as we've already said, goes beyond human ability. I mean, it's a divine principle that's impossible for any human being to practice in their own strength. The dynamic, the power, and the ability to live this out in our everyday practical lives, folks, has to come from a source outside of ourselves. That's the bottom line here, okay? These are these kingdom principles are only for citizens of the kingdom or in other words those people that have received Christ as their Lord and Savior. These were never intended to be general principles for the people of the world because these go beyond the unregenerate's ability to live this way. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit if we're going to live these out in our lives. Now here's the thing. We talked about the theme of chapter 7 being judgment. But the underlying principle that kind of undergirds uh, this chapter is God's love. God's love. And God's love, guys, agape, is a love that we don't have inherent in our own nature. I mean, we have self-love. We have family love. We have friendship love. These are words that the New Testament uses to describe human love. But we do not have inherent in our nature agape love which is God's love and all throughout the scriptures we are commanded to love with God's love God's love is what undergirds this section as I said but see we don't have God's love in our lives by nature where do we get it from well Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 5 when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior God pours the spirit comes in and God pours his love into our hearts now it's there That doesn't mean we have to access it, though. That doesn't mean we have to dip into it, right? I mean, Christians can still be selfish. Christians can still be uh, self-focused. Christians can still have bitterness and anger and retaliate and seek revenge. I mean, just because God's love is in us, we have the capacity to love as God loves. We don't have to walk in that love, though. In fact, I like to couple that with another scripture. Galatians 5.22, where Paul said this, the fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the first one that leads the list? Love, right? So think of it this way. Once you become a Christian, God plants His love into your heart. 
And now you have to continue to draw close to the Lord. Because as you continue to draw close to the Lord, the living water of the Spirit waters that seed and allows that to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit into our lives on an ongoing daily basis. We have to, though, you know, walk in that truth. We have to, as Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not obey the lust of the flesh. It's an ongoing thing, guys. Once God saves us and fills us with His love uh, and His Spirit, that doesn't mean we, that's it, all we need the rest of our lives. We are not big reservoirs containing the Spirit of God. We are channels through which the Spirit of God wants to flow through our lives. Which means if the flow is going to continue, we've got to be connected to the source, which is God Himself in the area of fellowship. But see, the flesh, our fallen nature, well, that's indigenous to us, to our being. All right? When we were born, we were born with a fallen nature, that which we inherited from Adam, which causes us to want, well, for many years, to live in rebellion against God, do our own thing. We didn't care who we stepped on to get where we wanted to be. It, it, was, it, it wasn't important. All that was important was me and what I wanted. See, that fallen nature is um, indigenous to our being when we're born. Now, here comes the Holy Spirit once we get saved and introduces seeds that become the fruit of the Spirit, right? What happens to a piece of ground that uh, where weeds are indigenous and they have a foothold, have for many, many years, and you try to introduce something into it like beautiful flowers. Those of you folks who are gardeners, okay? You want to take a piece of ground and it's got a lot of weeds in it. You try to pick all the weeds out and you, and you cultivate the soil. And then you plant this piece of, of ground with some beautiful flowers, right? Now, you have to work all the time to keep that garden beautiful and those gro- flowers growing, Right? It takes constant attention every day. You let it go a few days, all of a sudden here come the weeds, right? You let it go a week or two, and all of a sudden the weeds start choking out the flowers and killing all the good stuff. The same is true with us, all right? The weeds of self are indigenous to our being. The Holy Spirit introduces something that's really foreign to our being in the fruit of the Spirit. We have to keep walking with the Lord, keep drawing close to Him, stay in the Word, be in church and fellowship and so on, if we're going to keep tending to the things that God has planted in us, which will allow them to grow to their full extent and for the world to see that we're different. I mean, the world's got weeds, okay? When a child of God comes around with a life that's just blossoming with the love, the fruit, the joy, the peace of the Lord, that is a foreign thing in the eyes of the world. And they sit up and take notice because you're different. You are different. How come you didn't retaliate against that coworker when they went around saying vicious things about you? Why didn't you get upset when you worked so hard on that project and your coworker who did hardly anything got all the credit? I mean, how come you didn't lose your peace when you found out that your job was going to be terminated soon? And yet you come to work with joy? You're not rattled at all? Why is this? Because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Now, let me tell you this. As you continue to walk with Jesus, the life of the Spirit continues to flow in and through you. You start walking away from the Lord like you stop tending that garden, the weeds of self begin to grow up again, don't they? We've all been there, haven't we? I mean, you ever, you know, are in a period where you're just really walking close to the Lord, 
just you're really you're just really in love with the Lord, right? And you got the praise music going on all the time. You're driving to work down the expressway. You got the praise music on. You're singing praises to the Lord, and all of a sudden, here comes some guy, flat out cuts you off. And you say, oh, Lord, bless him. He's driving like an idiot, but keep him safe. And you go on praising the Lord. Now, when you're not walking with the Lord, okay, you might have the praise music on. But some guy cuts you off, you want to shut the praise music off and go after the guy and cut him off. That always indicates where you are, all right? How much you want to retaliate in the flesh or pray for them in the Spirit. Give you one more scripture. Turn to John chapter 15. Because Jesus talked about this very thing we are talking about. Again, the night before his crucifixion, he was giving his disciples some last minute instructions. In fact, it was like his, it was his farewell address, really. Although he wasn't going away that long, he was going to go to the cross, third day rise from the dead, and be rejoined with them for 40 more days before he ascended back to his Father. But listen to what he said in John 15, starting in verse 4. He said to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit, first one to leave the list is love. For without me, you can do nothing. You see, you cannot manufacture God's love. It has to come from God through a connected life where it will flow into your life and then through you to touch others around you. But we have to be in communion with Jesus. We have to abide in Him. And again, it's not a secret what that means. You're in the Word. You're in prayer. You're in fellowship with other Christians. You know, you just your your environment is godly, God everywhere. Okay, and as that is your environment, you know what? You will set your mind on good things, as Paul said in Philippians four eight. Uh, good things. All right. So, just to bring this to a close, if we could commit ourselves to one principle. It should be this one. Matthew 7, verse 12. If we commit ourselves to this one principle and then prayerfully seek to live it out each day in our lives, well, our lives would be radically transformed, not to mention the lives of those around us. I mean, marriages would be healed, families would be restored, churches would be revived and united, our light would shine, and the world would see that we were different. And Jesus said, by the love you show each other, the world will know that you belong to me. John 13, verse 35. New commandment I give to you, verse 34, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you belong to me because of the fervent agape love you show to one another. Jesus said, the closer we got to his return, the love of many, speaking out of the world, the love of many would grow cold. What impact would it make if God's people started to really love others with his love? How would that make our light shine? How would people see the difference in us? 
that we didn't retaliate, that we don't seek to get revenge if they do something wrong to us or whatever. I mean, it would make uh, a very powerful difference in our lives and in their lives by us asking God each day, Lord, give me the grace in my dealings with others to know what I would want them to do for me in this situation if the role was reversed. And now give me the grace to do that for them. Man, we would see a revolution in the church. May God give us the grace because it has to be God's grace to live this way in our lives. And may God give us that grace this year to begin today. Father, we thank you so much for your divine principles. We understand, Lord, that these are principles that the world could never apply into their lives. But Lord, we have been partakers of the divine nature because Jesus Christ lives in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And as such, Lord, you've given us the will to live this way and the power to live this way if, if we will crucify self and allow the Spirit of God to really begin to work in and through us the way He desires. Lord, we have to cultivate that garden every day and rip out the weeds. That means dying to self. If the Spirit is going to bring forth the beautiful fruit of the Spirit from our lives. Give us grace to do that, Lord. We are selfish by nature. It is easy, Lord. It's our default setting to just want to retaliate, want to hurt those who hurt us, to return evil for evil. But Lord, give us the grace to love people to the point where where we return good for the evil they do to us. By this, all men will know that we belong to you. We thank you, Father. We ask for grace to live the life you've called us to live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.